Let us pray before we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, uh, we've spent this morning lifting up your name, singing our hearts up to you in praise. You are lofty, you are glorious, you are transcendent. And as we look at your word now, God, we want to lift you up once again. And uh, we pray, God, that we would see you more clearly and be caused to follow you more nearly and to love you more dearly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 11. We're back to our series of God's story of beginnings. And actually, we are at the very end here, uh, chapter 11. Um, we've covered some of the seas of God's history uh, the past several months, actually since May of last year. And we covered creation in chapters 1 and 2, corruption in chapters 3 through 5, and catastrophe in chapters 6 through 9. And now we've come upon chapter 11 uh, with chapter 10. We're going to get some a little bit here and there today, but we're covering chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, confusion. And this is the Tower of Babel. So next Sunday, to wrap things up and try to just give a big picture of the entire story, we're going to finish the rest of the seas, Christ, the cross, and consummation. So just wrap up this whole series, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. But uh, before we get into our passage today, I have to do some very important, uh, just a couple preliminaries uh, before we get into the text. And so, first thing, uh, as related to uh, chapter 10, the timing of the events at Babel here in chapter 11. Chapter 10, some of us know as, as the, the table of nations, the descendants of Noah are featured, Noah and his three sons, right? And it details the families, the lands, and the nations that are formed from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God gave Israel the origin of the nations, which Israel would have some sort of interactions with for the next couple centuries and millennia. And Israel would see their own origin, that they were from the blessed line of Shem, of Noah's three sons. Now, reading Genesis chapters 10 and 11, you might get a little confused. Because chapter 10 begins by naming the sons and grandsons of Japheth. And look at verse 5 of chapter 10. It says, From these the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, every one according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. So multiple peoples, nations, lands, and languages. And then you jump down to verse 20, the end of Ham's sons listing. And it says, these are the sons of Ham, according to their families, plural, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Same thing with the sons of Shem at the end there, verse 31. Okay, separate people groups and nations and languages. Then look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Okay, only one language here. And it comes after chapter 10. For the whole earth, all the people on the earth. And this leads to the building of their city and the Tower of Babel. So what's the explanation? Okay, listen, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, explains and reveals the details of how the table of nations in chapter 10 were formed. The T Tower of Babel event tells us why and how the nations and languages of the earth began. This is the story of beginnings, remember? Okay, Genesis itself means beginnings. So this is like the origin story, if you will of the languages and nations of the earth. Chapters 10 and 11 are not in exact chronological order. And doesn't that remind you of something already in Genesis? Right? Genesis chapters 1 and 2. 
Genesis 1, six days of creation, right? And then chapter 2, starting in verse 4, gives us a little bit of a rewind, some more details of how that part of day 6 of creation, which was already told about in chapter 1, happened. Okay, so it's similar to that. That's kind of the way uh, the Hebrews do it sometimes. And so the Tower of Babel here in chapter 11 describes how the table of nations in chapter 10 was formed. Okay, chapter 11, 1 through 9, is chronologically before much of chapter 11. So that's one thing. Second thing, the origin of the nations and the issue of race. Okay, briefly, as briefly as I can, I want to just address this. Okay, the Tower of Babel story is fascinating because it does reveal to us the origin of different people groups and different languages in the world. Okay, why are there so many different nationalities and ethnicities and cultures and skin tones and different languages uh, on the, in this world? Well, again, the beginnings is found here in Genesis 11. It was after God confused the one language of all the people that they were forced to scatter throughout the earth, which we'll get to. So when we read chapter 10, again called the Table of the Nations, we see that the descendants of Noah all ended up in different parts of the world. And I'm not going to take time to map all that out. I actually mentioned it a month ago in my last sermon from this series. So if you want to refer to it, it's on our church website, end of chapter 9 of Genesis. But basically they end up all over the place. Okay, And so based on the conditions of where they ended up living over time, uh, different characteristics developed, like language, skin color, actually skin tone and shade, right? All from probably, they believe that Adam and Eve had a, a middle brown uh, skin color, skin tone, from which varying levels of melanin uh, could become dominant, again, depending on where you lived, closer to the equator or closer to the sun or further away. Um, we do understand and believe how microevolution works, and so other characteristics like hair color, hair curliness or straightness, the shape and the size of the eyes. Hey, there's a reason why I look this way. Uh, sizes of nose, lips, height, etc. Okay, um, this is what developed or evolved on a micro level. That's not a bad word, dear Christians. Okay, microevolution. Yes, uh, over centuries of time. And now we have a wonderful array and variety of people and looks and cultures and languages in the world, like so wonderfully represented here at our Faith Bible Church family as I look out. Okay, and this reflects greater L.A., okay, wonderful city of Los Angeles, California, my home sweet home temporarily okay, until my permanent, beautiful, unimaginably excellent home in heaven, my real citizenship. And uh, we know that heaven is going to be filled with every tribe and tongue and people and nation, all singing the same song of worship and praise to God, Revelation 5, verses 8 through 9. But of course, here on earth, there continues to be problems, racial strife, tensions and animosity in general. Some people, mostly evolutionists, truly believe that some races are superior to others. I shared with you before in high school, that's the way I learned it. Some people believe their race is actually superior, better than others. Uh, racism knows no color. Okay? Anyone can have racist attitudes. And then there are those, whether it's for political or financial gain or power and control, who can you continue trying to inflame these racial tensions and this whole issue, accurately called race baiting. 
And there's all sorts of critical race theories and accusations of racism and Marxist philosophies being pushed under the guise of social justice and equality and compassion. Uh, we as Christians, uh, we hate the sin of racism, just like we hate all sins, because we hate what God hates. And we give thanks to God that we've been freed from sin and that particular sin. Anyone who struggles with racial pride uh, needs to continue abiding in God's word in repentance and continue to be sanctified in that area by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus for all people. Further, as Christians, we believe what the Bible tells us, that there's actually only one race, which is the human race. We are all one blood, in essence, all the same. Our common parents are Adam and Eve. We all come from them. Acts 17, verse 26, it says, And he, God, made them, sorry, and he, God, made from one man, one blood, every nation of mankind to lie on, the, on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Okay, so finally, Christians understand that we are all sinners. We're all equal under the cross. And we all desperately need the Savior. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only ultimate answer to any problems, um, including racial divisions and strife, whatever those issues look like, on a national level and on a personal level. Okay, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And uh, the good news in the New Testament is called the Gospel of Peace. And that's between God and man and with man towards man and even man with himself. Okay, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He allows reconciliation and peace to happen. I'm not going to read it, but Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 19. Uh, spend some time in there this week. Uh, it shows how even people who are hostile towards one another, Jew and Gentile, who hate each other, can become one family in Christ. The gospel is that powerful. The blood of Jesus Christ is that much of an atonement and reconciliation for all sinners. So, with those couple preliminaries understood, uh, let's see what the primary lesson of our passage is today. And it's um, more than just giving us this wonderful information, although the information, once again, is fascinating and informative and educational and enlightening. I've titled today's sermon, Confusion, the Battle for Glory at Babel. And it shows us that after the flood, people continue to be sinful and rebellious, full of themselves, and looking for happiness and glory apart from God. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> 4,000 years later to anybody? People who are trying to find happiness and fulfillment and glory apart from God? One way that Augustine, the great early church father, 300s A.D., he described human sin was um, with the phrase homo incurvatus in se. That's Latin for humanity curved in on itself. Okay, the fallen human soul tends to curve in on itself instead of turning out and up towards God and to others. We learn through this historical incident at Babel what God does in response to this problem of sin, which seeks to glorify itself, which curves in on itself instead of out to God. So let's let's read the passage, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. If you are able to stand, please stand with me. Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9. 
Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Be seated. Although sinful man seeks to glorify himself, God mercifully intervenes so that he would receive all the glory. And that is our theme. That's the theme of this passage and two basic points today, verses one through four. It begins uh, with man's prideful rebellion against God, man's prideful rebellion against God. The first word there is now. It doesn't indicate exactly how much time has passed since the flood, just that it happened. It keeps it pretty broad, general. Following the storyline of Genesis so far, uh, we know this is happening sometime after the flood, and most biblical scholars concur, roughly 100 years or so. So 2250 B.C. is what we're looking at. And um, some of you will be interested to know, Noah was probably still alive because he died around 2000 B.C. And so all the people, which would have included Shem, Ham, and Japheth's sons and grandsons and children and grandchildren, they all spoke the same language. And I say grandchildren because look at, go back to rewind to chapter 10, verse 8 for a moment. It tells us about a man named Nimrod, who was Ham's grandson. And out of all the names in chapter 10, the most information is given about this man, Nimrod, verses 8 through 12. He was a mighty hunter. Some people say of animals. Most people say animals. Some people say people. Most likely animals. And apparently a very powerful warrior who had charge over a number of kingdoms. Starting with, it says there, Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna, all part of the land of Shinar, which is where we are in Genesis 11. Nimrod had quite the reputation among people. Everyone knew him as a great skilled hunter. And because of this, most commentators and Jewish historians have linked Nimrod as the leader of the rebellion at Babel. Uh, almost turns him into uh, a legendary figure, almost like a Conan the Barbarian type. Um, But a minority of scholars do not link him so directly with the Babel event, and I happen to agree with them, and that's because Nimrod is mentioned nowhere in Genesis chapter 11 in the whole passage. And when you read, as I just did, verses 1 through 4, there seems to be a collective. They did, they said, they said, come, let us, let us, ourselves, so it's all plural there, no, no mention of Nimrod whatsoever. 
So it's possible to me that he was part of this rebellion, maybe even a leader, but I don't, I don't go any further than that. In any case, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Only one language, one vocabulary at this point in history after the flood. Hey, we don't know what language that was. Some people have that question. That's not the important thing. Um, it's just that everyone on earth could speak and understand each other, unlike today where there's over 7,000 languages. Verse 2 says they settled there. They settled there. That was the issue. Hey, the people's disobedience to God. Because you might read this and say, what, what's wrong with that? What's, settling in one place as a whole was against God's command to scatter it's the exact antonym opposite of spreading, of filling the earth with people. Again, God said in Genesis 9, after the flood, to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. By the way, they journeyed east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar. They settled there. This was lower Mesopotamia, fertile crescent region as it's known, a choice land with rich soil, probably the area of modern-day Iraq. And so this sweet spot is meant by all the people to be the permanent residence of the world. This is in direct opposition to God's plan for them to multiply and spread out. So they say to one another in verse 3, notice from the start, to one another, okay, communication is good, isn't it? Communication is key. But who's missing here? Okay, God. God is missing. Um, he's nowhere mentioned there whatsoever. And um, they say to one another, uh, let's use these bricks for building the city. So apparently brick and mortar technology was uh, groundbreaking at that time in the post-flood. Um, and they're reaching for the skies after all. There's no walking by faith in God here. We're going to do it ourselves. Verse 4, they say, come, let us build for ourselves. They say, let us make for ourselves. And this is the main issue. Okay, let us, let us, let us. Where's God? A key repeated phrase for ourselves for ourselves the thought of god is not in the picture at all okay, not too many years after the flood a couple generations right these descendants of noah are living and acting as if god does not exist as if god does not matter as if his word does not matter god is not in the picture of their lives and i ask you this morning are any of you living like this today think about your life okay, what is your daily routine what is your schedule? What are your plans? Is God in it? Is Christ in it? Or are you just doing your own thing by your own power and wisdom? The people here in Genesis 11 think they can just ignore God's commands, ignore his word, specifically to scatter and fill the earth. So they're going to settle down in this lush, choice, fertile, fruitful land and build a grand city and a magnificent tower. And it's purposeful. It's intentional. They're saying to each other, let's make this for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. It's all about them. This big city, this huge tower, it's to bring glory to themselves. And thus the title, right? The battle for glory at Babel. They say, let's settle here. Otherwise, verse 4, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. <laughs> Isn't that exactly what God told them to do? So... It's important to get this, folks. Uh, what was God's purpose in that command? Okay, to scatter, to fill the earth. Okay, listen, it's to spread his name, the name of Yahweh, the name of the one true God, to represent him 
as king across the entire planet that he created. He told them to go so that his glory could be spread. It wasn't meant for one place. People were and are supposed to be image bearers of God. We are made in the image of God and we're supposed to mirror forth, image forth who God is to spread his glory in the earth. That means we're supposed to reflect the character and name and nature of God with our lives as those who are made in his image. Humans are, are, are created to represent God. That's what we're, we're made for. We're meant to do. We're supposed to be putting on display God's goodness, his grace, his righteousness, as we care for his creation and we care for one another. And this is all in worship and fellowship with the one who made us and gave us life, never apart from him. Hey, Revelation 4.11, some of you know it well, but Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. That's the purpose of us. If you ever wondered about why you exist, there it is. To represent, display, magnify, glorify who God is. And so these folks in Genesis 11 are operating completely apart from the thought of God. It was all about them, their plans, their name, their city, their desires. I ask you once again, what about you? Psalm 115, or Psalm 127, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So let's substitute the word life there. Unless the Lord builds your life, you labor in vain who are building it. We're we're all building something, folks. Who is it for? Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, your being, your character, your nature, be the glory. Why is that? Because the psalmist says of your loving kindness and your truth. That's the character of God. Once again, lest anyone think this is not such a big deal, you don't see much wrong with uh, people's disobedience here. Uh, Don't see much of a rebellion here. Uh, I I just ask you to consider, what does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? In Mark 12, verse 30, Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. The first, foremost, greatest commandment when he was asked is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Some have argued, and I tend to agree with them, If that is the greatest commandment according to Jesus, then maybe the greatest sin is to not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hey, debatable. But 1 Corinthians 16.22, you know what Paul says? If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Along those same lines, what about the sin of keeping God out of our lives and plans and thoughts and decisions, refusing to glorify him with our lives, ignoring him and his word. Again, think about your daily schedule. What do you think about when you you wake up in the morning? What do you think about before you go to bed at night? Those might be the two most important moments in in our day. Psalm uh, Isaiah 48, 11. God speaking, he says, for my own sake, he repeats it, for my own sake, 
I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? He says, how on earth can my name be profaned? That means to, to be made common, to be treated as if it's normal, casual. The sin of blasphemy is, is acting as if God, his name and who he is, it doesn't, doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. We can just live life how we want to. And yeah, he's there, but, but I'll just go on with, with living for me. Okay, thoughtlessly speaking and living, using God's name in a casual way, right? Much less cussing, right? Using it as a, a cuss word. To not love God, to not glorify God, glorify God, to spend your days not thinking much, not having many thoughts of God. This is human pride that is consumed with self. And this is the root of our problem. Okay, all of us apart from Christ. Augustine is helpful here again. Um, as one theologian writes, observing from Augustine's famous book, he wrote a book in the 400s A.D. called City of God. Quote, while Augustine did not have just one metaphor for sin, he believed that pride is the beginning of sin. In pride, there is a turning away from God to self. Rather than remain in obedience to the creator, all of humanity has chosen the prideful path of finding its own good apart from God. But sin is not only pride. It is also a misplaced love choosing to love self above God. We were created by God to love God supremely. Yet in sin, we have turned inward, rejecting God and giving our greatest adoration to the almighty self, end quote. And so this is linked to the argument of the greatest sin, greatest commandment. So something to consider. But the sin of living our lives as if God is not that important, God barely exists. God is just kind of a, a byproduct or a side thing uh, of the main things of our lives. Is grave, great, serious sin, dear people. So when we look at Babel here, we see a clear picture of that. Pride, rebellion, um, all together as one against God as they battle him for glory. Such blatant disobedience. We see that they're all about themselves. They're doing all this grand planning and scheming of their lives for the sake of their own name. And we've got to ask ourselves, what are we living for? And so what's God going to do here? How does he respond? He's not going to send another flood, right? Noahic covenant, rainbow, promise never again like that. Um, actually, he responds with much mercy and compassion. That's our second point. Hey, God's merciful response to man, and it starts off with a... Uh, Kind of a bridge, a hinge verse in verse five. Verse five says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Notice the Lord, capital letters L-O-R-D, Yahweh, God's personal name, his memorial covenant keeping name. The great I am, I am who I am, the self-existent God. Jesus says in John eight, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. So this is the God who's speaking here. It says he came down to see. And of course, it's not as if the Lord God is nearsighted or farsighted and he's finite and he can't see what's going on. Uh, another anthropomorphism, okay, assigning human attributes to God. 
which describe his investigation and his action upon a given situation. Um, if anything, this highlights the, the minuscule nature of man's plans and projects. It's a little bit um, uh, of that kind of language there. Kenneth Matthews writes, it shows the escapade for what it was, a tiny tower conceived by a puny plan and attempted by a pint-sized people, end quote. I like that. Um, by the way, the tallest tower uh, called ziggurats, ancient towers, uh, that have been excavated by archaeologists is about 330 feet tall, the tallest one that they, they could find. Um, I don't know how high a Babel's tower was, but 300 or so feet up. Today, a building called the Burj Khalifa, which was built in 2010 in Dubai, uh, is the tallest man-made skyscraper in the world, a 2,717 feet tall. And that's, uh, that's roughly nine football fields high. The One World Trade Center in New York is... 1,776 feet tall. They replaced the, the Twin Towers with the One World Trade Center, right? 1,776 feet tall, purposeful. Empire State Building is 1,454 feet up, right? Um, and these kind of do reach into the, to the skies, into the heavens, don't they? That's why they're called skyscrapers. Uh, but in God's eyes, even these are nothing more than a, a child's Lego set. Or us playing Jenga. Um, nothing compares to the lofty, unreachable transcendence of God. We tried to highlight that in the songs that we chose uh, this morning to sing of God's holiness. Isaiah 40, verse 22 says, It is he, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, Isaiah 40:22. Well, after Yahweh assesses the situation, uh, verse six, he notes that mankind is one people with one language, united in the same goal of making all of this for themselves, purposely for their own name, without acknowledging the Creator God or having anything to do with Him. God sees this as human hubris, arrogant pride, self-exaltation as he should, and yet he responds with compassion. And God is merciful. We should see that in the text. Even in his judgments, he's merciful. And he knows that in man's united rebellion, if they are allowed to continue and succeed in this city-building, tower-building projects together, They will continue on the path of doing whatever they desire to do. They're going to do nothing will be impossible for them. They'll think they can do anything, whatever they want. Nothing which they want to do will be impossible uh, apart from God. That's what they're thinking. And here's God's heart. It's provoked to pity and compassion on these lowly sinners. And it reminds me of myself in college, me and my friend, Pat McStravick, who I met, met uh, playing ping pong freshman year in college. And uh, it dawned on us uh, that first semester as we were talking. You know what? If God does not exist, then we can do anything. We literally can do whatever we want. We both have a semi, we had a semi-religious upbringing, so God was in there somewhere. But if, if God doesn't really exist, 
we're free. Anything goes. We were, it was a very excited, happy conversation. But God here responds in mercy as he did to me. And he's going to cause confusion here uh, in this particular situation. He's going to ca- cause confusion in their language. He's going to intercede and put a stop to man's pathetic plans. And once again, understand, this is not God merely trying to keep people from being happy and from doing what they desire to do. This is God's merciful judgment on man's foolish rebellion and attempts to be fulfilled apart from him. And he's correcting their prideful attempts to live as if the creator doesn't exist and doesn't matter. And it's similar to what he said in response to man's sin in the garden, if you recall that. Basically, if things continued in the way that they were going, man would be lost forever in their disobedience, their rebellion, their godless autonomy, and their selfish glory. Man would not fulfill the role the Creator had given him to be his representatives on earth and to be ultimately fulfilled in right relationship with him. Okay? That's the thing we got to understand. And there are literally billions of people today who don't know God, who deny his existence, who have no concept or care for his glorious name, who think it's okay to just take or leave Jesus, right? You try to evangelize people and they're like, okay, that's good for you, but I have my way, right? Um, It should be no surprise to us that the world is how it is today, filled with immorality, corruption in every sphere of life, the media, the government, schools, etc., There's evil all around us. The culture's morality is upside down, as we know. What is right is wrong. What is false is true. This is a world of non-believers living as if there's no God. And maybe more disturbing, there are many who are in the church today, go to church for many years, claim to be Christians, yet somehow continue to live Monday through Saturday without any real commitment or care for God and his word and his commands. Some can barely make it to church on Sundays, not truly loving Jesus, much less loving their neighbors in a real way. Might know a bunch of facts, might say they believe in God, might even say they believe in Jesus Christ, would agree with the information contained in the gospel, but outside of church on Sundays, their faith is barely visible. You've got you to gotta squint to see it. No discipleship of themselves or others. No witnessing to the lost around them. Little to no service to the church. Little to no Bible reading time. Little to no prayer time. Which actually is evidence for little to no real affection for God or faith in God or love or affection or faith in Jesus who, as I keep saying, is the greatest treasure of the gospel. Our hearts should be consumed with love for Jesus Christ. Billions of people in the world who are building their lives, their homes, their families for themselves. Are you one of those billions? If that describes you today, God is lovingly calling you to repent. This is grave sin. Turn from your pride. Turn from your love of self, because that's what it comes down to. Repent of your disregard for God. And turn to Jesus. Listen, I'll say it again. Unless the Lord builds your house, your life, your family, 
you build it in vain. And potentially, as Jesus says, broad is the way to destruction. This describes the people in Genesis 11. So what does God do about it? Of course, he has the most brilliant plan, doesn't he? He has the most brilliant plan. Verse 7, he says, come, let us go down. Right? This is mirroring verse 3 where the people say, come, let us make bricks. Right? God says, come, let us go down. The triune God in conversation with one another. Let us. Right? Who is God speaking to? Father, Son, and Spirit. We get to peek in and uh, listen in on the, the conversation that they're, they're having. And once again, even God's judgment is merciful. Man's arrogant actions here deserve much worse than this. We deserve much worse, dear people. But God, he instantly puts an end to man's grandiose campaign. And he does it by confusing their language. And can you imagine being in conversation with someone and all of a sudden not being able to understand a single word that they're saying? Right? Like the the city planners here, suddenly they don't understand the workers. And the workers don't understand each other. And the tower architect, he doesn't understand the, the foreman. And the foreman doesn't understand the laborers. And none of them understand a word any of them are saying. They can't understand. This is confusion. This is chaos, even panic. It's a legitimate reason for a government shutdown. Hey, verses 8 and 9, God's purpose and plan to glorify himself in the earth, it's not going to be thwarted. Okay? So what does he do? The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. So this confusing of their one vocabulary, one word, one lip, caused the people to scatter like the Lord commanded in the first place. They left the city, their project spread themselves across, it says, the face of the whole earth as they should have before. And so going back to chapter 10, we have the... The explanation of the, the table of the nations, right? The peoples and the families and the lands that developed after this happened. Okay? So it's not certain whether they finished the tower or not. It seems that the tower was complete or at least close to it. Um, but verse 8, it says they stopped building the city. So it seems like the city was probably incomplete, um, which might include the tower. But in any case, verse 9 says the place was now called Babel. And it's because that word is related to the Hebrew verb balal, which means confused or mixed up. And this is a, an appropriate name, isn't it? Uh, it shows that instead of being a, a monument to human achievement and human glory, uh, it actually speaks to human failure. They became, they became a, a babbling, confused mess. I mean, it's kind of funny to try to picture what was going on at that at that time when God brought that on. But this was his brilliant, merciful plan to spread his kingdom and his glory throughout all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. By the way, later in history, Babel or Babylon would exemplify the threat that the Canaanite nations presented for Israel. And we read about that throughout the Old Testament. And even throughout the Bible, Babylon represented evil Autonomous human rebellion against God. I won't read the passage, but um, Revelation 18, verses 1 through 3, um, and including verse 8 as well. Um, Babylon is mentioned there and represents evil. So um, another interesting comparison, as many have noted, 
is that at Babel, uh, sinful humanity sort of reverses the Lord's Prayer, if you think about that. Uh, they're saying, hallowed be our name, glorify our name, our kingdom come, our will be done, uh, make earth to be our heaven. Okay, they weren't trying to get up to the one true God building that tower. Okay, It was for themselves, right? But listen, at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, what happens? Okay, God almost reverses what happens here at Babel. Okay, there's a, a united kingdom, spiritual kingdom in his name, God's name. All peoples of all kinds right, worship for God's fame, not for themselves. Once they receive the spirit and they become saved. Uh, once divided, all these people and, and people who are against one another, they're once divided. Now they are one and they're united by who? Christ, the Son of God. So, as we consider the theme once again, um, wrapping this up, although sinful man seeks to glorify himself, let us see God's compassion, his pity, his mercy on man and what he does to intervene. And I'm sure he has intervened in the lives of those of us who have been saved in a gracious, um, radical, incredible way whenever you are saved. And to some, that work is yet to be, yet to be done for those who are unbelievers. I ask once again as we conclude, are you battling God for glory in your life this morning? Are you trying to live on your own strength, your own wits, building your house, your life apart from God? Jesus would say it's the foundation of sand. Jesus calls that man foolish who's building his his life on, on sand. But Jesus says when the storm comes, everything that you've built, your house, your home, your life, your family, your retirement, he says it's going to fall. Matthew 7, 27, end of the Sermon on the Mount. And great was its fall. The major problem with the prideful people at Babel is the same problem today. Not living for God, living for themselves. So you don't consult God, you don't trust him, think we can do our own things by ourselves. And this goes even on a, on a broader level, right? Whole corporations, companies, maybe the company you work for, businesses, schools, colleges, universities, even many churches operating this way, no matter what the Christian lingo and Christian environment is, going along with the world, doing it in their own ingenuity. When man can do life by himself, he doesn't need a savior. And this is, of course, foolish arrogance and open rebellion against God. Babel serves as a warning to us that we must submit ourselves unto and under God's mighty hand and not be deluded into thinking that we will prosper if we rebel against him. Okay, the Bible is clear, dear people. First Peter 5, 5. God is opposed to the proud. But he gives what to the humble? Grace. That's right. Grace, mercy, compassion. If you don't want God as your enemy, opposition, humble yourself under his mighty hand. Confess your sin. Turn to Christ. Build your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. He will never fail you. That's his promise. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time in your word once again and how 
important and needed and essential it is, how crucial it is for us to not just hear your word, but to heed and apply. I pray, God, that you have spoken to us, you've humbled us. Thank you for your promise to exalt the humble. You will lift us up with you, with Christ. And as we set our minds on the things above, um, you promise ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment as we live our lives for, not for our glory, God, but to you. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.